This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. Our first guest has seen poverty and mental illness from a rare vantage point. Doug Wilson has just retired as the state's lead public defender. He spent more than 30 years with the office that represents indigent defendants. I asked him if there's a case that stands out in his long career. I have one particular young man who I have reconnected with. His case highlights how we haven't gone very far in 30-plus years. 1995, I represented a young man who had severe mental health issues, paranoid schizophrenic. And his mom tried to admit him to a hospital. And the, what do you think the first question was they ask? Of the mother? Yes. I'm unsure. What's his insurance? And then he was turned away. And seven days later, two priests were murdered by him. The prosecutor was going to seek the death penalty. And we worked very, very hard, brought Sister Helen Prejean in to the community to speak to the Catholics. This is the anti-death penalty advocate. Correct. And ultimately, we're able to convince the prosecutor not to seek death. And my client was committed to the state hospital, is out now, doing fabulous. But it's just an example of we haven't changed since this was in 95. We haven't done any better about dealing with those folks with mental health conditions and they're involved in in the system. I just want to say that it's often that those with mental illness are violent towards themselves as opposed to outwardly violent. So fair to call this case exceptional? In other words, I, I don't want to draw an inappropriate link between mental illness and going out and killing priests. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Most cases in, I don't call it the criminal justice system. I call it the criminal court system because there's really not much justice in what we do. In the criminal court system, most of the folks that have mental health conditions are there for really Mickey Mouse lower level crimes. As I have described to many people, it's the stinky guy in the Safeway store that gets arrested for trespass and then that turns into a resisting arrest with the law enforcement or he spits on a cop and all of a sudden we're looking at prison time. And so, as I've heard from many in the court system, in the law enforcement system, the jails and to some extent prisons become the mental health facility. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember the deinstitutionalization in the late 70s and early 80s. Many of those institutions closed. and, And the concept was great that we were holding too many people in mental health institutions. The problem is we never fulfilled the back end of the promise, which was to adequately fund the community mental health centers. And that's, again, back to my client, what happened is he was on a waiting list, couldn't get in. And we see that every day. And so we did a good thing in theory. We've never, ever done what we said we would do, which was to get folks help in the community. I had a, I had a consumer, a mental health consumer, describe it to me like this. When you're playing laser tag with God, a cop telling you to put your stick down isn't really going to have an impact on me. And so let me go through my psychotic episode and don't shoot me. And I'm not going to be a danger. I'm just having a game of tag with God. Yes, but it's hard for the cop to know. I have a lot of empathy for police officers. I think we try really hard to do a lot of training. There's mental health first aid. There's some training now that's being offered at their certification process 
to teach officers how to recognize folks with mental health conditions. I think we get really impatient with people sometimes. And if we just took a deep breath and a step back, maybe things wouldn't escalate. But I've never been in a police officer's shoes, so I certainly don't want to speak for them. Additionally, you think, uh, particularly in jails, there are folks who are there, not because they are great dangers to society, but because they simply can't afford to get out. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that. Great. Uh, Bond reform in general has been in the news a lot lately. There is a potential ballot measure in the next few years that might deal with this. The legislature has struggled with this. What's your perception of what some have called a de facto debtor's prison? It's absolutely de facto debtor's prison. The folks that are sitting in jail right now in the state of Colorado, 60% of them are pretrial detainees, meaning they've been charged, not convicted, and they're sitting there because they can't make a bond. I think this is a really important distinction. So these mm-hmm. are people who have not been found guilty of Correct. a crime. They've been charged. Uh, they're innocent the, until proven guilty. They haven't pled guilty. They haven't been sentenced. But about 60% across the state are sitting there because some judge refuses to release them. Now, you say some judge. Yes, Why don't we put a name to some judge? Because judges have a lot on the line in potentially releasing someone who could be dangerous. This is Judge Carlos Samor. He's now an associate justice on the Colorado Supreme Court, but he was formerly chief district judge of the 18th Judicial District. That's Arapahoe and Douglas counties. You might know his name because he presided over the Aurora Theater shooting trial. And uh, Judge Samora spoke with Allison Sherry, our justice reporter, about judges' reliance on cash bail. The only tool that judge has to protect the community in that instance is to set the bond so high in terms of a monetary bond that the person can't post it, the person can't get out. And that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at, is that if you give judges you know, a hammer as the only tool, then that's the only tool they're going to use. Justice Samor actually serves as the chair of the Bail Blue Ribbon Commission, which is charged with evaluating Colorado's pretrial practices. I'm trying to imagine myself as a judge thinking, my goodness, is is this person that I let out going to recommit a crime? I have to think about the safety of the community. Square that for me. Sure. Uh, Well, I don't believe what Judge Samor says is accurate at all. In fact, the evidence doesn't support what he has said. How so? The evidence behind bail reform, we did bail reform here in 2013 in Colorado, for the first time took money out of the definition of bail. The evidence says that money does not protect the community, that money does not ensure that people will not commit new crimes, and it does not ensure a return to court. The natural thinking behind this would be, the more money you have on the line, the less you're likely to commit a crime if you're released. But that is not what the evidence bears out, you say? That's correct. What the evidence bears out is that release with some sort of conditions, supervision, a monitoring keeps people from committing new offenses and keeps people from failing to appear in court. What does that mean about who is sitting in jails who you think should not be? There's a lot of low-level what I would call Mickey Mouse offenses that have a bond amount, a cash bond amount that people cannot get out there. Are there people in jail who have committed or and been charged with serious offenses? Yes. Should they be in jail? Yes. But the bulk of the folks could be released without a threat to the society and without a threat to community. Mickey Mouse, give me yep. examples. Trespass, minor thefts, property crimes, 
things that are not crimes of violence, things that are not physical assaults. You say that Colorado has already passed, uh, as you call them, reforms. Yes. It seems that they didn't work in the way they were intended. Judges didn't follow them. What we found out is in 2013, when bail reform was passed, we then did a study as to what the percentages of release were for personal recognizance prior to the bail reform, and then four years later. And El Paso County being the, the absolute worst, did not pay attention to the law, did not release people on personal recognizance with conditions. Has it gotten better? Yeah. We had to sue Denver to get them to comply. But even today, yesterday in the newspaper, there was an article about El Paso County is about to pay out a whole bunch of money because they weren't letting people out per the 2013 law. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the state's now just retired state public defender. That's Doug Wilson. He doesn't call it the justice system because he doesn't see much justice in it these days. I want to talk a bit about young people. A 16-year-old in Denver will be charged as an adult in the murder of her seven-year-old nephew. And you've been actively involved in the issue of juveniles, whom you think receive unfairly long prison sentences in adult prisons. The idea being that their brains aren't fully developed and they aren't as, as culpable as adults. What would you like to see changed when it comes to these kinds of sentences? Well, I think we have to start with the charging decisions. Right now in Colorado, you can charge the district attorney. You know, we have 22 elected DAs across the state. They have full authority and the only authority to make the decision who gets charged. You can charge a kid as young as 10. I don't know what you were doing when you were 10, but I wasn't worried about getting charged with a crime and and going to jail or to prison. I wasn't murdering anyone either. True. But I find it highly unlikely that even a 10-year-old that committed a homicide today is the same 10-year-old in 40 years. And that's what we've done. We have decided that we're going to treat children, even though, again, the evidence says that full brain formation doesn't occur until mid to late 20s. We're going to treat children like an adult, regardless of the age. There's a difference between a 17-year-old with 364 days and a 10-year-old. There's a difference between a 16-year-old and a 12-year-old. Where we draw that line of demarcation, I don't know. The Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has decided that just arbitrary that 18, we don't execute before that. But but they just picked that age. There wasn't evidence that said when you hit 18 in one day, you are old enough to be executed. We picked that because we needed an age, even though they readily recognized that full cognitive brain development isn't going to occur until mid to late 20s. It sounds like what? You think there needs to be more research or just that the justice system needs to catch up with the research there is? I think we could start with just catching up with the research that there is and take a look at how can we intervene at an earlier age. I imagine that over your career, you've seen a lot of pendulum swings between those periods where it's about rehabilitation, it's about understanding what's behind crime, and then on the other side, uh, don't be soft on crime. We we have zero tolerance for this kind of thing. Maybe we're in that latter category today. I think we are and I think we have been. I mean, in 85, we just decided to double all of our sentences uh, without any evidence to support the concept that one more day in prison or one more day in jail was going to make somebody a better person. 
we have seen some reforms in drug sentencing, mm-hmm. um, but unfortunately, even those reforms that have happened in the last four or five years have not really had the impact that I think people thought they would. We've seen a 47% increase in felony filings across the state, which is hard to explain. I think prosecutors would say, well, part of it is population. Uh, And I would say, well, that's great, except for the fact that the misdemeanors, lower-level offenses haven't gone up. And you haven't seen an increase in juvenile filings. You've actually seen juveniles drop. But adult felonies have just skyrocketed, and most of those are drugs. And of course, there's the connection between drugs and mental health if people are self-medicating. Why didn't you go into private practice? I mean, isn't like public defender (laughs) the... um, It's okay. You're going to ask. What are people's public pretenders? uh, Oh, I'm not sure. But I just think, you know, it's a lot of people think of it as thankless. It is thankless. It's also exhilarating and some of the most uh, rewarding experiences I've ever had. I was in private practice, actually. I was in the PD's office for four years and I left and went into private practice and was given the opportunity to come back and run the Pueblo office for the public defenders. And I jumped at it, even though I took about a $40,000 a year pay cut and I had a better golf game and I had hair. I didn't have a belly and I, I missed the clients and I missed having the connection with indigent folks accused of crimes. Well, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Doug Wilson just retired as the state public defender. His successor is Megan Ring, who comes from the public defender's office in Boulder. Next month, the FDA launches a campaign to try to keep teenagers from vaping. And this month, the agency expanded its investigation into how e-cigarette makers market to children. In Colorado, a recent survey shows teens vape nicotine twice as much as the national average. CPR's health reporter John Daly has been following this issue closely. Hi, John. Hey, Ryan. And let's start with this new survey. What does it add to our understanding? Well, teens are vaping a lot more in Colorado, more than other states. And here's what appears to be one reason why. A survey found just half of kids polled think vaping is risky, Uh. while 87% see conventional smoking that way. The state's former chief medical officer, Larry Walk, says the products are marketed with fun-sounding flavors that appeal to kids. Yeah, cotton candy, banana split, gummy bears. I mean, how can that be harmful? The 2017 Healthy Kids Colorado survey, which just came out, shows 58% say it's easy to get e-cigarettes, and more than a quarter of minors now use e-cigarettes far more than conventional cigarettes. And one other thing, e-cigarette use nearly doubles between freshman and senior years. The survey sampled about 56,000 kids from nearly 200 middle and high schools across the state So this is uh, pretty robust data. Gummy bear flavored. Yeah. Okay. Uh, A study published in the American Journal of Medicine suggests teens who vape are more than four times as likely to smoke traditional cigarettes within a year and a half compared to teens who don't vape. Mm -hmm. Are teens trying e-cigarettes more or less, though, than other potentially addictive substances? Well, the survey got into this, too. It's the second most tried substance in Colorado and notably ahead of pot. Nearly 60% of young people say 
They've tried alcohol at least once. 44% have tried e-cigarettes. That's ahead of the 35% who've tried marijuana and 16% for cigarettes. Okay, so alcohol leads. In alcohol that leads, right, and then e-cigarettes, and then it's marijuana, and then conventional cigarettes. The state health department is now studying why Colorado is such a hot spot. Does it have to do with regulations in our state or how Colorado compares culturally with other states? No one is exactly no one is exactly sure why this has taken off so sharply here. Are there new ways that local and state governments are responding to this emerging emerging health threat? Well, we are starting to see the passage of Tobacco 21 laws, ordinances that raise the legal age to purchase tobacco products, including e-cigarettes, from 18 to 21. In Colorado, the mountain towns of Aspen, Basalt, and Carbondale have passed such rules, and Avon is looking at it, too. Okay. And again, that covers both traditional cigarettes and e-cigarettes. Right. All tobacco products. As we mentioned, next month, the FDA will launch an ad campaign aimed at teens, I think, who already vape and those considering it. Mm -hmm. What else is being done at the federal level to crack down on vaping? The FDA began regulating e-cigarettes in 2016. A federal law bans the sale of e-cigarettes to minors, selling them in vending machines or distributing free samples. Next month, e-cigarettes must have a warning label saying that nicotine is addictive. And by year's end, manufacturers will need to submit an ingredient list to the FDA. But anti-smoking, anti-vaping advocates criticize the federal government for not doing more and not jumping on this sooner when public health officials were warning that it was an emerging threat. And what about here in Colorado? Well, not so much. It's been hard to get stuff through the legislature on this, frankly. Uh, the nonpartisan Colorado Health Institute looked at e-cigarette use at state and at the state and national level and at those policy efforts, research analyst Jalen Ingalls says Colorado is behind other states that have e-cigarette taxes and licensed e-cigarette retailers, moves that retailers and manufacturers generally oppose as burdensome. John, how can parents play a role in all of this, do you think? I think parents are key. The 2017 Healthy Kids Colorado survey definitely provides some insights here. Teens whose parents know where they are and who they're with are nearly 50% less likely to vape. Minors who have clear family rules are 39% less likely to vape. Those who can ask a parent for help are 31% less likely to to vape. So that parent-child relationship is just critical. That communication, but also that monitoring, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Supervision. This goes back to the idea that young people appear to view e-cigarettes differently from traditional cigarettes. Just point blank health-wise, are there any benefits to e-cigarettes? I know this is like the critical question that's always raised. Right. Well, let's just say that there has not been a lot of research yet. Okay. Um, I think public health officials are really concerned that there are long-term health impacts and that, that, that that's being proven and will be proven in, in research. Uh, the, the industry makes the argument that it's less dangerous than conventional smoking. And uh, I I think that the public health community might say, yes, but, but what about what's in the pods? What what, what chemicals are in the pods that you're taking directly into your lungs? What about the long-term addiction to nicotine? So I think everyone 
that I've talked to would agree that that this is not a, a healthy habit that that you want your kids to be taking up. And perhaps there's m- room for more science. Yes, and of course, more research for sure. Everybody yeah. agrees on that. Too. And the connection then between e- e-cigarettes and graduating to cigarettes is obviously really critical here, as you've noted. Thanks so much for being with us, John. You bet. He's you bet. CPR's health reporter, John Daly, talking to us about the disproportionate number of teenagers who vape in Colorado. Abnormally dry to exceptional drought. That describes most of Colorado today. And for the first time, Aspen just enacted what's called a stage two water shortage indefinitely. Lawns there can't be watered more than three times a week. Colorado stores its water in several places, naturally as snowpack, as well as aquifers and reservoirs. Some of those reservoirs are looking low. We asked Rebecca Mitchell to join us. She directs the Colorado Water Conservation Board. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Ryan. How are you today? I'm doing well. What's the state of water storage right now and going into the fall? Is there cause for concern? Uh, I think this year um, we should all be aware of what's happening. October through June, um, so October 2017 through June of this last year, uh, we saw um, the third warmest and third driest um, October through June period of records um, for 123 years. So it is, it's one of those times that we need to be aware. Um, and, and it's key here that it was both uh, warm and dry, right? In other words, dry meaning rain didn't fall or snow didn't fall as, as much as, mm-hmm. as people would hope. But hot meaning that what was there might might have melted off sooner than we exactly, expected. Evaporate. Okay, sort of the perfect storm there. Yeah. So in terms of reservoir storage, when we were looking at it April first, everybody was about average or slightly above average. We're now at eighty percent, eighty six percent statewide. So that means some people may be at average. Not very far above average, but then we have our significant basins like the Southwest Basin that are that are at 50 percent of average in storage. The Southwest Basin, I also think of that as a part of the state that saw some pretty spectacular wildfire this season as well. Uh, definitely. So you had the 416 fire. So that really compounded the impacts from the lack of um, water availability. I think reservoirs can feel uh, maybe a bit distant, distant from my kitchen sink or something like that, uh, or where my food is grown. So what does it mean that reservoirs aren't at where you expect them to be? Like practically, what does that mean? So what it means is um, there are certain areas that have multi-year storage where they're, they're able to store for um, drought for an extended period of time or uh-huh. a year or two. When you have an area like the Southwest, the majority of their base... Uh, their reservoir storage is a single year storage. So it's what comes in goes out. And so when you have a drought like this, next year is where we have a a heavy concern is how they're going to respond to this. And um, coupled with the water quality issues that have come out of that fire. Yeah. Explain the connection between fire and water quality, because these go hand in hand and they actually have a lot to do with reservoirs and what get sort of dumped into them after a fire. Definitely. I Thanks for bringing that up, Ryan. Um, well, 
when you look at a fire or a burn scar, you cannot talk about water quality without talking about forest management. So when you have a fire and there's that runoff, that water goes um, runs off into the rivers. And oftentimes, that will fe- affect the supply because you can't um, take water with such poor quality that's filled with ash and debris. Oh. And so um, or or you have to treat it. Um, differently. Okay. And that probably requires energy and expense. Expense and and energy, exactly. So to the parts of the state that have a shorter term water storage and are concerned about the year ahead, what what actions might they take? Are we going to see more of what Aspen did, for example, with these restrictions? I think definitely that the restrictions are going to be one of the first actions that the, the providers take. But I think it's we have to remember that it's uh, water affects more than just municipal and industrial. Indeed. We have to worry about our farmers and our ranchers and our recreational operations. And so um, I think folks are going to be looking at timing. Um, they'll definitely be looking at water restrictions probably early on. What do you mean timing? Um, the timing of when they start those water restrictions. Okay. When that happens, they'll be looking, they're going to start thinking about next year now, if they haven't already. Okay. So putting the, the planning and water planning, water planners. Mm-hmm. Uh, will this mean plainly that I can't or just shouldn't water my lawn as much as I'm doing? I think we all need I say to, I, and I mean the we. The we, the, royal the collective. Colorado we. The collective we, the you yes. and I and all of us. Yes, I hear you. We we need to be aware. And we, as we look as people moving into the state, and, you know, Colorado is such a wonderful place, and the reason they come is because of the open space and the recreation and um, and the security of water, that we need to be aware and educate folks that you can't just um, – it, it, this isn't Minnesota. This isn't um, – I came from Hawaii, and another headwater state, and I lived on the wet side of the island, and you didn't think about drought as much as you do here. So as we bring – as people come in, we need to make sure that we're spending time educating, and shows like this are important for But that. back to agriculture, we know that that is the largest water user in the state. I think I have that right. Mm-hmm. So what might this mean for farmers and ranchers? So it's under the prior appropriation system. So right, they have uh, some rights to that water. They have rights to that water. So if if their rights aren't in priority, they they will be struggling, and that has an effect on the collective we. If we can't get our fruit and vegetables from our local farmers or our um, chickens or or um, Pigs? Pigs or cows. I'm throwing out any farm animal. <laughs> um, depending on what you like to eat. If we can't get that from a local source and we have to look outside. Um, so it, it really requires us all to come together and work on, on the solution, whether you're a farmer, a rancher, or a municipal and industrial provider. All right. There was an early, early forecast of how the winter might look from government forecasters, and it it showed an average to perhaps below average year for snowfall. You've talked about how water planners are already looking uh, into the year ahead. How much snow or rain might have to fall to paint a rosier picture? Above average. (laughs) (laughs) A lot above average would be helpful to fill those reservoirs. Are you looking at forecasts at this point? I wonder um, if that's part of your role. Uh, 
It, I have uh, Taryn Fennessy in my office that that um, handles a lot of that, and oh. we're starting to look out, but we're not predicting at this point. Okay. Um, is it is it just too far out to have a confident prediction? Um, I think it's it's similar to your bank account. Sometimes you you think things aren't are are perfect, and then your furnace goes out. Uh-huh. So uh, <laughs> we we have to be careful in predictions at this point. So where do rivers factor into this? Because a recent Washington Post report says water levels have been so low in Colorado that it is affecting fishing, and thus fish, I imagine, and rafting companies as well. I think this speaks to the recreation aspect that you were talking about just a bit earlier. Yeah, it's, it's so important to recognize the impact that water has on the economy of the state of Colorado. You saw that the South Platte, um, you you might have seen that the South Platte had closed to um, any recreation um, through that Littleton, Inglewood area. So they didn't want any disruption or disturbance for the fish because they were already in um, a bit of a... Um, stressed environment. So we see that that has impact. If if Coloradans can't get out and recreate that way, um, they're not eating at the local restaurants. They're not buying um, tubes. They're not um, buying fishing lures. So it has an impact. And so um, that's all the factors. So we have to look at our creative water projects to get water flowing through the rivers. Let's get a little nerdy about reservoirs, shall we? One thing that fascinates me about how Colorado stores its water is that um, it it is in such a way that evaporation is is an issue, is my understanding, right? So if you have all your water in a reservoir and it's, as you say, both hot and dry, doesn't a lot of the water we store just kind of go up into the sky and get lost, Does it make sense that we store water this way? Should we be injecting it into the ground or something? I think that we have to look at multiple ways of storing water. So I thank you for bringing that up and getting a little nerdy on me, Ryan, because that's that's my uh, comfort zone. But I I think you bring up a good point about um, aquifer storage and recovery. So that's legal in the state of Colorado, and there's projects that are that are doing it. And we look at there are projects like um, the the Wise Project that incorporates both surface water storage and underground storage. there is injection costs and power costs associated with um, the putting pumping, it into the ground, putting it in the ground, and then pumping it out. But there's also if if we don't have the above ground reservoir storages, we we may lose out on um, recreational opportunities. Right, they're obviously big draws for mm-hmm. Coloradans as well. Well, thanks for helping us understand the complex picture here and how tied this is to the economy in Colorado. Uh, Appreciate your time, Rebecca. Thank you, Ryan, for having us. She is Rebecca Mitchell, director of Colorado's Water Conservation Board. Big Head Todd and the Monsters formed in the 1980s after Todd Parkmore, Brian Nevin, and Rob Squires started making music as students at Columbine High School. The band developed a loyal fan base, and they're still going strong. The latest album from Big Head Todd and the Monsters is called New World Horizon. Let's listen back to my conversation with singer and guitarist Todd Parkmore 
Welcome to the program. Good day, eh? <laughs> this is your 11th studio album. You've described it as, quote, pop guitar rock. What do you mean by that? Well, that's those words are pretty concise. Uh, pop music, guitar-driven pop music, rock music. Uh, the reason I describe it that way is because many of our past records, especially the last uh, five to seven years, have been very blues-oriented. Yeah. Is that a sound you're trying to get away from, do you think? Um, sure. Yes. <laughs> no, I, of course I'll never get away from the blues. But, uh, yeah, I think it's a very conscious uh, you know, decision to bring out more of the pop rock aspect of our group. Why? Uh, to make money. <laughs> to gain notoriety. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I think it's important to always try to have a direction. And uh, it's... I like to think every everything we do is a bit of a surprise to somebody, you know. Uh, hopefully, we're not writing the same record over and over again. Yeah, but, but you know, fans sometimes have different expectations, you know. Uh, do you find that, that the fans are willing to evolve with you? Sure. No, fans are way ahead of me. Yeah? Sure. That's a nice feeling. I mean, I think there are a lot of acts that say, gosh, our fans want the same old stuff, you know? No, I... I think fans are music fans are are looking for good music. They're interested in wanting to be turned on by by something great. Why is that pop right now? Why is it pop? Yeah. Um well, I I guess I use the word pop in a different way. I just I I use it to refer to the song structure themselves, you know, which is just verse chorus verse chorus bridge verse chorus. You know, I, I think of Damaged One uh-huh. from the new album as something of a classic pop song. Yeah, it's a straight pop song. Well, why don't we hear it from the new okay. album? It's almost got a country pop feel. It is. It's country pop, that one. <laughs> Very catchy. I can hear a bit of pedal steel guitar in the background. A little bit, yes. Do you listen to much country music? No, I don't. I mean, I, I, I listen to old country. I like Johnny Cash and, you know, all that kind of thing, but, but not much contemporary country, no. Talk to me about what this song means, the damaged one. Uh, you know, uh, my my... Subject matter throughout my career, but especially recently, is about conflict and uh, how that relates to intimacy and pleasure. Uh, I kind of look at the whole brain as conflict, and uh, uh, the other things are all part of a conflict, part of it, but it's not recognized. Uh, so I enjoy exploring that uh, in you know whether it's about talking about relationships or the world generally. That's so heady. Okay, let's see. I want to break that apart. So conflict. I guess first off, uh, when you're together for decades, is there much conflict in a band? Does Big Head Todd and the Monsters have to conflict to work through? Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. No, not necessarily. I think uh, human beings work best when they can work cooperatively, uh, when they can look out for each other's interests, when they listen to each other. Those aren't typically part of 
human activity, though. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I feel like you're reflecting the the world maybe a little bit there right now. I, don't know. I think every every human being is fundamentally conflict bound. And yet, out of that, you write a catchy pop song. It's a nice balance, Tom. Yeah. Well, <laughs> my job is to give pleasure, <laughs> uh, and hopefully, uh, insight comes from that. Comes out of that. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Todd Park Moore. He is a lead singer and guitarist of Big Head Todd and the Monsters, uh, formed in 1987 after they met uh, the band did as students at Columbine High School. And they've got a new album. It's called New World Horizon. I love the cover art for this, cool. by the way. It's well, like thank a, you. It's like a uh, abandoned sort of desert scape. And there's a piece of odd playground equipment in the middle of it. It looks like it. It's an optical illusion. It's just a like a pinball coming down in the middle of the desert, like a giant pinball. How much control do you get over the look of an album? Um, I That was my idea. Oh, it was? Yeah. I kind of worked it out with the artist, and uh, we did the photo shoot and uh, built the model. <laughs> I didn't personally build it, but yeah, I was, I was kind of integral to this, to this one, so I'm glad you like it. When you started out, people weren't buying music on iTunes. Uh, they were buying, I suppose, in addition to maybe... CD singles. Mm-hmm. CDs had just arrived. Okay. Uh, and that maybe you thought more about the craft of an album and people listening to a full album. Mm-hmm. Have you had to adapt, I don't know, even your perception of what an album is because the market is so different now? Yeah, I have. But on the other hand, I, there's still uh, albums do something for fans of a band. It, it, it marks the life of a band, really. So I think... Uh, albums are still important uh, for a band like me, even though I know what you're saying about it. they're not important to the to the market so much because it's all about singles now. But. Yeah, I mentioned your loyal fan base. Uh, the band is known for hosting musical cruises for fans. Uh-huh. And this past September, you did this in Italy. I think there's a Caribbean cruise set for March. You told one interviewer, "We're stuck with our fans for a week on a small boat." Yeah, do you like that? I do. It's led to some incredible friendships. And um, it's one of those things where everybody has such an important, great time that it really spills over into a lot of other areas. And I think it's been really good for our career as well. I presume you perform on these cruises. Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, But then are you just walking around the boat like as the Rock stars? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fun things to do. (laughs) You get over that really fast. It's just, uh, you know, whether it's checking out a local town or hanging out on the beach, I mean, we all have a great time doing it. Gosh, there's a part of me that would want to just retreat to my stateroom at a certain point. That does happen. I can't do people anymore. (laughs) That happens. (laughs) Uh, You have a lot of fans in Colorado, and uh, they look forward to seeing you perform at Red Rocks nearly every summer. I've read that you've played Red Rocks 19 times. Is that right? I don't know that it's right. I I haven't kept track of the number. You've lost count, in other words. I've never kept track of that number. Huh. Do you have memories of going to Red Rocks as a young person? Sure, yes. Who did you see there? I saw you two there. That was my first concert. I was 16 years old, the Under a Bloody Red Sky. Oh, the uh, one that became the, 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 the famous, famous video. Yes. All those meteorological conditions yeah. leading to that kind of misty. It was a failure of a show in a lot of ways. I mean, from... 
the sense of it was so it basically got canceled and then they decided to do it at the last minute and you were there uh, i was there it says something about you. Maybe there's a certain humility in this, Todd, that you don't count the number of times you've been at Red Rock. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the acts I, I interview, you know, real like make a tally of that stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay. Why don't we hear another song from Big Head Todd and the Monsters' latest album, New World Horizon. This is the title track. I have to say, that sounds more like a classic Big Head Todd, Big Head Todd song. <laughs> okay. Tell me about this. Um, you know, the, the, the music of this is an old gospel song. I first heard it uh, on a Charlie Patton recording. And, uh, you know, so it's about 100 years old, the recording I had. And uh, the, the song of his was, uh, Jesus is going to make my dying bed. Or Jesus is a dying bed maker. Ah. <gasps> Um, but I, um, I just kind of wrote some guitar riffs and, uh, some lyrics that I'd, I'd been working on for a while actually just kind of fit into it. And so that's, that's the story of the song. It's, you know, basically a new world is rising, but, but the old world will fight you till your dying day. You've described yourself, you described yourself as a Charlie Patton freak. Oh yeah. Tell us about Charlie Patton just a bit. Um, well, He's sort of the grandfather of rock and roll in a lot of ways. Uh, John Fogarty bought his tombstone. Um, he was uh, a Mississippi bluesman around the turn of the century into the 40s. Uh, he had his throat slit a few times. A few times? Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was said that um, you could hear him from a half a mile away. His voice was really powerful. And uh, he had an incredibly grainy, powerful voice. His racial origins are uncertain. He looks kind of like the guy from Mad Magazine, you know, the, what's that guy? Is that Alfred 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 Newman? Newman. Yeah. He kind of has that look. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I've always just been astounded by by those recordings. I'm glad you mentioned voice, his voice in in that case. But uh, how have you felt about your own voice over the years? Has it changed? Um. Very slightly, I think I've I've improved my range over the years. I've learned to sing a little bit better. Uh, how, I, how have you done that? Like lessons, or just is that just just learning how to take care of yourself to warm up properly? Uh, you know, music is about warming up and doing things incrementally. Uh, I warm up very slowly. Uh, what do your warm ups sound like? I just kind of work my way through and get up there eventually. Create a little vocal fry almost. (laughs) Uh, Back to the blues for a bit. What what drew you to the blues? Because you've done some side projects. Yeah. Blues Club. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Sure. Yeah, I've always been drawn to the blues. You know, I I grew up in Littleton, Colorado. Uh, That's not culturally blues central. (laughs) Um, But there was a great uh, used record story called Wax Tracks. Uh, Oh, yeah. There was a couple others. Uh, Offbeat Music was the one that was in Littleton. Um, and uh, the lady there just turned me on to to blues records. I would just buy them 
by the cover, you know, and uh, I just enjoyed the discovery of it so much. Do you remember the first blues you heard? That well, kind of rocked Ray Charles. It was the first uh, experience, really. I'd gotten a Genius or Ray Charles uh, record at a garage sale. Before we go, I want to go back to money. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, you talked about evolution being uh-huh. also part of the bottom line. Um, I was sort of kidding. Sort of. Okay. Yeah. I was, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. But that has to be thought of at least. Well, I mean, you're, right? we're, we're in a functioning business, so it is important. Yeah. Um, luckily for us, uh, because I, I, one of my criticisms about our culture is, is that it's a business. And uh, I think that uh, we should talk about that. But, um, you know, for us, we just have to make our fans happy. That's the big the big difference between us and had we been st- on a major label throughout our career, we'd been making lawyers and A and R people and record execs happy. Hmm. Uh, that's that's a big difference. You've been together, Big Head Todd and the Monsters, for thirty years. Same lineup, though keyboard player Jeremy Lawton joined the band in two thousand four. I think. Uh, do you look at a band like the Rolling Stones? They're all in their seventies, you know, and say we're just getting started. Uh, I don't feel that way about the Rolling Stones. Like, <laughs> but about yourself? I feel that about myself and our band, yes. Um, there are many more years and decades to come. Uh, I'm not sure about that either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think so. You know, we, we, we all love what we do more than we ever have. And um, so I, I hope it continues as, as long as I'm able to do it. That is Todd Park Moore of Big Head Todd and the Monsters. We spoke in December as the band begins its fourth decade making music. Their latest album is called New World Horizon. Finally today, pianist Stacy Farian finds inspiration in children's nursery rhymes. She writes pieces based on tales like Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater and Itsy Bitsy Spider, but with a twist. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf has another story of artistic obsession. Everyone knows the Muffin Man. Yes, the Muffin Man, who lives on Drury Lane. In 2012, Stacy Farian had this traditional English nursery rhyme on her mind. She doesn't remember why, but she does recall what inspired her to write a version of it that was as creepy as possible. A friend of mine and mentor introduced me to the residents, and he showed me the song The Act of Being Polite, which just blew my mind because it was so just refreshingly weird. I didn't mean to hurt her when I fell asleep last night. Hearing that 1980 song inspired Farian to get a little weird herself. She also had just gotten divorced, and that influenced her too. I was going through a pretty dark time, so I felt like this need to to start creating my own stuff. And I think it turned out kind of melancholy, but also pretty playful. And I think that's a true reflection of who I really am. She composed a dark rendition of The Muffin Man. 
It was the first piece of what would become a collection of piano solos called Whimsically Macabre. Drawing on nursery rhymes became Farian's artistic fascination. I started looking at other nursery rhymes and I realized how they're sort of creepy things already that I can just intensify the creepiness a little bit. <laughs> and so it was, it was fun and it was rewarding in a way. She's released five whimsically macabre albums, the most recent being These Are Odd Times. And she's far from getting bored with this. The music that goes with them is often just overly cheerful and grating, and I like to make it interesting and a little more nuanced. One nursery rhyme she keeps coming back to is Itsy Bitsy Spider, a work from the Mother Goose canon that actually inspired Farian's 2017 album, Lullabies for Arachnophobes. see the spider just continually struggling and being washed down the spout again. (laughs) So I imagine a lot of people identify with that. For her next album, Farian would like to write music for spiders who are afraid of humans. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. Hear more of Stacey Farian's music at CPR.org, where you can listen to other stories about Colorado artists and their obsessions. And if you know an artist with an obsession, email us. We want to know about it. Arts at CPR.org. Arts at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.